Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Thank you, everyone, for coming. If you love independent films, you're in the right place. We have three um, special guests. They're award-winning independent film directors. And let me introduce you to... I didn't even introduce myself. (laughs) I'm Denise Michaud, chair of the Girl Notes Forum. But let me introduce our guests here. Um, We have um, Emily Cohen Ibanez. Mm -hmm. Eureka Goma Gama Gama <laughs> Remmer Romer. and Abby Abby uh, Abby sorry <laughs> I need my notes actually Ginsburg yes. Abby Ginsburg All right so each of them brought two clips to share with you today um, and we'll see that in a few minutes but before we do that why don't we get to know them a little bit and I have a couple of questions for you one would be um, how did you, or when did you know that you wanted to be a filmmaker? Were you like Steven Spielberg who got a camera when you were a kid? <laughs> and also now that you're accomplished filmmakers, what do you love most about your work? And what do you love the least about your work? <laughs> so who would like to start that? Let's start. Go ahead. Um, okay, so because just the question just triggered something for me. I mean, I actually thought, you know, I started becoming a filmmaker when I made my first film. But really when I made my first film was when I went to China in 1977. And as I was going to China, somebody said, are you taking a Super 8 camera? And I said, no, I don't have one. She said, well, I'll get my brother to give you his. And so literally because nobody, you know, from the United States at that time was really getting into China, I thought, well, I better document this. So I did. And when I came home, it was literally scotch tape and this tiny little Super 8 stuff. And I sat in a dark room and I somehow went from whatever I'd shot to turning it into something, you know, the National Lawyers Guild goes to China. Um, And that was, I think, when the bug really bit me. But that was 1977, and I didn't really become a filmmaker till like 1983-84. So I would say that was my origin story. And then I started because I had been working, as some people in this room know, for Cal OSHA um, and for Federal OSHA. I started doing training films for workers. Mm -hmm. And let me say that was a great way to start because the bar was about here. (laughs) And as long as you made people laugh twice during the film, the film was a major success. So that was kind of, that was how I figured out how to become a filmmaker. And because I had funding to make these films, I could hire really good people who taught me how you make a film. So that's kind of how I got started. Um, And how did I know there was no going back? I didn't. I just, I had been a lawyer and I just went from, you know, film to film to film. And here I am 30 plus years (laughs) later and I'm still going film to film, which takes us into the second half of it, which what do you like best? making the films, Mm -hmm. finding the subjects. Um, You're going to see a clip from a film of mine, and I'll sort of just describe how I knew I had to make this film, and that's like kind of what happens to me. Um, I was at an event where the woman who's featured in this, Saru Jarayaman, was speaking, and she was talking about how the minimum wage for tip workers is $2.13 an hour. And although I was outraged, something else was happening. My hands were getting clammy. My heart was beating. I was like oh my God, this means I might have to make a film. (laughs) And that was seriously 
I knew I, I mean, I just literally, that's how I know I have to make a film. I have some yeah. kind of physiological yes. reaction and I'm like, okay, I'm going to marry this subject somehow. Mm-hmm. And five years later or whatever, four years later, the film will get made mm-hmm. and without having any idea how or who's going to fund it or what's going to happen. So the challenge, and I would say this is for me the most challenging part, is that really every film has to find its funding base. Mm-hmm. And just because the Ford Foundation liked the minimum wage issue, it wasn't going to fund Barbara Lee. So that mm-hmm. required a whole different strategy. And mm. I, I don't know for you guys, but for mm-hmm. me, every film requires going back to ground zero, starting again. Uh. You know, it helps if you have a few awards to your name, but it doesn't really mean you're going to be able to find the next half a million dollars in 10 minutes. It means it's going to take you a long time, a lot of work. And so at the same time that you're figuring out who you're going to interview and how you're going to get the beginning of the film going, you know, you're looking at a mountain that is pretty high and without yeah. a lot of ropes to get you up there. So mm-hmm. so for me, the best part is knowing that I'm willing to live with a subject for five years. Wow. And the worst part is knowing I'm going to be living with the subject <laughs> for at least five years. And it is in that combination that I find my inspiration. So that's me. Mm-hmm. That's great. I mean, yeah. And I think there's a lot of points of connections that we had been talking earlier about that I really kind of resonate with. For me, in terms of becoming a filmmaker, it was quite a circuitous path. So, you know, um, I kind of came of age 80s and 90s. Um, so there was video cameras and I and I would make videos. I don't know. <laughs> I considered them films, but I liked them um, doing, you know, TV. Uh, we pretend to do TV shows with my friends. I did do something that later I reflect on. I would do these presentations and we had a VHS camera. And I remember I didn't know how to edit, but I would play different video on the TV and film the TV. And that's how I would get everything <laughs> assembled. So like, hey, that's kind of editing. And then um, in, <laughs> in college, I I took a I, I was studying anthropology, took a course, social documentation, and it was uh, 1999, and I was at UC Santa Cruz. Santa Cruz at that time was the one of the three most prepared towns for Y2K apocalypse. Mm. So I made a short. <laughs> <laughs> I made a short, but for school, you know, for college class, um, uh, on people preparing. And it was on um, public access uh, and they kept screening it. People really liked it. My teacher really liked it. So I got like positive feedback. But again, I thought filmmakers, you know, that was like an impossibility. I thought in my head that was for like, I had the image of Hollywood. I never been exposed to this indie world. So I just didn't know it was a pathway. Mm. So I worked in public health. I went back to graduate school and I went to graduate school in New York. I did my doctor in anthropology, so it was a long time. In New York, I met so many, you know, I met artists, I met the filmmakers, I met people doing all these things. And it was like, wow, and it was a really wonderful exposure for me. And there was a culture and media certificate. So we could take some, if we were doing our doctorate in anthropology, we could take some classes. And um, I just knew I want to do this. So before I even I was able to take classes, I met this guy. I would go out dancing a lot. Anyway, I met this guy <laughs> who was an editor for like a kind of big deal director. And he said, hey, the thing is, just get yourself a camera, whatever you can afford, mm-hmm. and just start do- doing it. Doing it. So I got a camera 
uh, with very, you know, I got some sound stuff. He kind of taught me and I'm a fast learner. So then I was doing my dissertation research and just made a very guerrilla style film. And um, with, you know, just, I had money for my dissertation research, but, and I was in Columbia. Um, so that I, I uh, edited and George Stoney, who is just an American treasure. Um, when I, he saw what I was doing, he said, you know, you're a filmmaker and got really positive feedback. He gave me a little scholarship um, and he said, I'm going to sign you up as if you're a filmmaker. Cause I said, I'm not going, I'm in the doctoral program. I'm not in the film school. Anyway, he said, I'm going to sign you up for everything. So you could take advantage of all of our resources here at NYU. I used to sleep in the edit room and I just watched the film <laughs> students. And that's how I learned. Hmm. I watched them and then I'd say, Hey, come over, look what I'm doing. And so I really learned that way just by doing, um, but again, you know, I just, I'd been gotten feedback, like, if you don't have a certain amount of money, you're not going to be able to do this. So I, I even became a professor. Like, you know, I really was, but I wanted to be a filmmaker. Hmm. So then there was finally a moment where I said, I really want to make a jump. And my husband was like, you know, uh, we were getting married. And he's like, look, like, do it. Like, this is what you want to do. Like, we're, we can do it. We don't, you know there's we could take risks mm -hmm. so um i did i kind of was freelance for a while freaked out went back into academia that's why i moved out west and i was like no i want to do film <laughs> <laughs> so finally now I, I am a freelance filmmaker and very happy and i um even fruits of labor that did quite well like bodies at war i it never got distribution i didn't know the industry it, it did premiere at a film festival in colombia bogota's international film festival great a lot of academics reviewed it but you know no one in the industry really knew about it and then um i was doing this film fruits of labor i was teaching high school how to make films and they had a really nice camera black magic 4.6 earth and i had to teach the camera so i told the high school i said hey um if you want me to teach this well, I need to use the equipment on the weekends. And that's how I started making that film. <laughs> and, nice. and they let me and they had fantastic equipment. So um, that's how I, and that film, film is done uh, very well. So that's how I got into, or at least within the standards of, for me, Andy Doc, like. It's on POV. Yeah, I know it did well. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so by doing that, I was able to enter. Hmm. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a bumpy road. I think I love making films. Like I just love it. I love the community, the documentary film community here in the Bay. It's like incredible. Um, uh, yeah, it's definitely for me. I think kind of what Abby was saying, um, that forever like difficult relationship with funding and, um, it can be frustrating sometimes, you know, we want, we were talking about earlier in conversation, it's like, okay, you make that film that got recognition. Now you want to push the form in another way. And while filmmakers are able to take a lot of risks, sometimes funders and financiers are a little more risk adverse. And so, um, I think that's just a constant struggle. Mm -hmm. How about you, you Rico? Well, I spent 10 years in advertising. <laughs> And so my introduction to films was little 30-second and 60-second yeah. commercials. <laughs> and we would, you know, we would get wined and dined and, like, be sitting next to, like, these directors that made lots of money and high-end editors and sitting in all the nice sound 
studios and you know that's what I was doing and then it started being like well this is someone at a party said to me oh advertising today's advertising is tomorrow's trash and I thought (laughs) but but realistically it's kind of true (laughs) you know and I had all these like like it scares me to think how this is a long time ago like where I had budgets that were bigger than my film budget to make these silly little things that end up being trash. So that's how it started. And then I started thinking, well, I like this part, but, you know, I would like to do a little bit more. So I started finding these sort of excuses to do longer format things. And then I signed up for Jay Rosenblatt's class at San Francisco State. (laughs) And he said, you want to do documentaries? Maybe go talk to these... um, women at Stanford, and I was like, no, 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 I don't want to go back to school. And I went down and talked to them, and I ended up going back to school. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, but then, so I went to Stanford, I I graduated, and um, I I actually won a Student Academy Award, but I had, I Um. like, had a baby, like, (laughs) it was pretty much like, oh, here's your finished film, and oh, by the way, you know, now I go have a baby. So actually, <laughs> my son is back there in the background. Um, so he actually went to a couple. He was actually at the Student Academy Awards because he was here. <laughs> I mean, the challenge was coming up with two dressy things where I could wear it over this. But um, yeah, so, and then I, I didn't actually make my next film until... Um, Gosh, I, I think it was like more than 10 years after I graduated because I was mm. busy being, you know, taking care of a baby and all that kind of stuff. So, um, and then all of a sudden, you know, I was I was being a filmmaker and I was loving it. And mm. like, I went to UCLA and never took a film class. So right. it's, mm. it, it's a weird kind of thing. And I knew a lot about it, but I had not put my hands on it until I took, Jay Rosenfeld class, and I was taping together eight millimeter film. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's people ask where do you get your subjects, and I think that they usually like come to me. Mm. And um, so, actually, one of my the sources of one of my films. Well, you're going to see a clip for Diamond Diplomacy, which is still in production. Um, but there's a guy back there, Dave Dempsey, if he wants to stand up and he can wave. And um, he said, hey, my dad used to play for the San Francisco Seals and there's this exhibit at the California Pioneer Club. So we went to see this thing and I learned about the 1949 San Francisco Seals got sent to Japan post-war. And so that's what started that film. And, you know, things like that where it just feels like, okay, here, this is, you need to do this. It's kind of like you, you know, you start to get that, sweaty feeling yeah, yeah. <laughs> like okay i think i need to make a film <laughs> so but but you know it's it's passion because it's mm-hmm. it's exciting and even if it's taking a long time i've i've like people keep going oh we'd love to share a film and it's like it's not done yet yeah you know and then they're like well can we have you come speak anyway so like i got invited to the embassy of japan to speak about this topic like and this was like five years ago so you know there's stuff like that that happens that just reinforces that we're not in it to make money and i mean really when it comes down to it i think those of us in the front row here will probably agree (laughs) is that uh, the hardest thing and the most annoying thing is that you have to raise the money to make these Mm -hmm. films and Mm -hmm. and 
And you can't do it without that. So, but it, I just want to say one thing based on that. It's like you're constantly selling this idea. It, the film isn't done yet. I mean, this is true for Emily's film. This is true for your film. It's true for my films. And when it's done, everybody's like, well, that was a great idea. It's like, we told you. <laughs> you know, you didn't help us along the way. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like people can't see it till they see it. Mm. And by then it's too late to be helpful. So it's mm. really, it's, we're in a funny conundrum here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. How do you get people to support independent filmmaking? <laughs> Well, I think, I mean, it, look, she's doing a film about, you know, Japan, the United yes, States, and baseball. Yes. That is like, there are people who are interested in that. Yeah, that's a great You pitch. know, I was making a film about Barbara Lee, which you guys will see the clip for. You know, there were people who really cared about Barbara Lee. Mm-hmm. So that made it easier. It's like, and you know, and for your film, there are people who care about the experience of migrant workers in the Salinas Valley. So, and these are three totally different subjects, okay. totally funded by different people. You know, my there film. There's nothing of, easy about reason. <laughs> no, no, nothing's easy yeah, about any of it. I'm just saying yeah. that there are people and organizations that are interested in, you know, kind of each of our topics, yeah. but we're still at it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's a lot of persistence. Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. just yeah. being yeah. committed and, yeah. And you really need to be passionate about the subjects because you couldn't keep doing it. If, right. If, mm. And you're sustaining yourself through a lot of no's. Mm-hmm. You know, yes. thank you. This is a very nice idea, but no, thank you. Or, you know, yeah. we're not funding you this round or yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. So you have yeah. to like, that has to be water off a duck's back. Mm-hmm. I remember one time I was talking to, okay, so I have a relationship with Major League Baseball and I'm talking to them and I said, well, don't you have a production wing? And they're like, yeah, but we don't fund films that do Kickstarter campaigns. And I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, why not? <laughs> I think at some point they might kick in something mm. to help get it out in the world, but at that point they're so, I mean that was the way they put it. It was like, no, you're oh. just too small. Oh. <laughs> well, why don't we start seeing some clips? Okay. And we'll start with Abby and Abby, your first clip and each clip is about 2 minutes. Your first clip is Barbara Lee speaking truth to power. Do you want to set it up a little? or um, I think a number of people here have seen the film. So it's more about, you know, I, I mean, I think the thing to say is, you know, it, the thing to ask yourself as you're watching this is, would, if you hadn't seen the film, would this make you want to see it? Mm. Because that was the challenge that we faced in putting this trailer together. It's less to tell you the story and more to make you want to see the film. So not everybody's seen it. So. All right. Let's play it. And now, a political icon in Congress fighting for social justice. Hometown hero, Congresswoman Barbara Lee. I see myself more as a public servant, not necessarily a politician. She is exemplary of the courage that it takes to stick to your principles. I was a student at Mills College as a young mother on welfare with two kids who's working in the community with the Black Panther Party, making sure people have something to eat. Social justice, that's always been just part of who I am. When I first came to Congress, they told us, don't use the word poverty. But Barbara Lee fights to elevate this issue. Raising the minimum wage to a living wage. That's a recommendation which this committee should embrace. You meet her and you instantly feel connected to her spirit. She's very values-driven. It is coming from the core of her beliefs. Barbara Lee is the conscience of the Congress. She is going to be that consistent voice for what's right. President is authorized to use force 
This is gonna set the stage for endless war. This resolution passed. One no vote on the board. Central to democracy is the right to dissent. She was right. It was important that her community understood the enormous risk she took in standing up for peace and justice. When I feel like I'm under fire, I think about her example. You know, she paved the way. You can stand your ground, speak your peace, and survive. I felt mentored by her example before I ever had the blessing of being mentored as a colleague. My friend, daughter of Oakland, is now the vice president, so the East Bay is in the house. Because of Shirley Chisholm, I am, and because of Shirley Chisholm, Kamala Harris is. Continue to speak out, don't back down. And as we say in my district, stay woke. <laughs> That looks like a big film. It was. So a you big had. Film. How did you get access to all the that? Well, let me say that. that all the people in the film love Barbara. They didn't know me from Adam. So when <laughs> you know when I either I called or somebody from her staff called, they all said yes because they love her. And how did you made, get this project? I, I had that same sweaty hand. <laughs> you know, I like doing stories about people who are not well known. Um, who are kind of under the radar, but who inspire me. Mm. And so Barbara totally fit that. And once, you know, once she had done her no vote in 2001, she was sort of in my sights, even though I didn't get started on this film for many years later. Mm -hmm. um, I just felt like people needed to know about her. And if you travel around the country and I don't know, her name comes up and people are like, Barbara, who? And I'm like, no, you need to know who <laughs> she is. Um, and so that's why I made the film, is I just felt like there was enough there and there were enough issues in her story that I cared a lot about. I mean, the idea that you're not supposed to say the P word for poverty in Congress, like, hello, mm. you know, so she stands for everything I believe in. So I get to, by telling her story, I get to put values that I agree with up on the screen. And that felt very important to me. Um, did her team use this? They are using it and they will continue to use it. I think, I mean, she wasn't running for anything until like yesterday when she declared for the Senate. <laughs> so the film was like, well, that's nice, a nice portrait of her. And now where she has to introduce herself to the state of California and there are all these people outside of our district who have no idea who she is, the film will be more helpful. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I don't exactly know what her team is going to do with it, but I'm going to try to make it as available as I can to them, mm. you know, because they could do a virtual screening around the state of California and get a thousand people to watch it. It's going to help people at least learn something about Barbara. Mm -hmm. So but I have to say, when I made this film, the thing I was happiest about is that it wasn't an election film. It wasn't like we're not following Barbara to see if she's going to get elected. There was not a moment where you saw a ballot box or you were worried about what she's going to make it. That was a given. Hmm. Now, it's all of a sudden an election film of a sort. You know what I mean? Even though I'm not going to change it for this. Right. It's, so that the fact that the whole context has changed is kind of weird. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, all I can do is try to be as helpful as possible. Um, so, just say. <laughs> to your question, yes. Yes, what? This is a film that I would want to see based on. Oh, the thank yeah, you. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yes. I agree. Okay. So for the filmmakers in the room, <laughs> yes. Denise, what's the name of the place I sent you to? Uh, Wheelhouse. Wheelhouse, New York. The, that trailer was done by people who do oh. trailers for many motion pictures. They're really good at it, and I recommend them. Wheelhouse. Wow. Wheelhouse. Yeah. Wheelhouse, Great. NYC. Okay. Okay. Emily, we're going to go to your 
Sure. Next clip is called Fruits of Labor. Do you want to set it up? Sure. Um, so Fruits of Labor, it's a coming-of-age story of a young woman named Ashley. Um, and she um, is a Mexican-American uh, farm worker and factory worker. And she dreams of graduating high school um, and going to college when ice raids in her community um, it, along the central coast of California, uh, there's an uptick and threatened to separate her family. Her mom is undocumented. She's a U.S. born citizen. But so it's really that drama. There's humor in it. Um, there's first love. There's prom. So there's all those sort of um, coming of age moments, but within this um, kind of Th this moment, right? Um, and in terms of coming to the story, I knew Ashley for many years before oh. making the film. Um, I have a long history of doing uh, union organizing work uh, in Watsonville, where the film takes place. Mm. Um, and my sister's involved in food security work. And so Ashley was sort of already, uh, we were kind of aunties. And I, I did... Um, a uh, collaborative video project with my university students at UCSC um, with uh, youth of um, farm working families. Um, and we made a video collective and I met Ashley along the way. And then after the 2016 election and saw that all the youth I was working with went to work in the fields, um, I was like, wow, this is an untold story. You know, we keep hearing that deportations are happening because there's a angry kind of white working class in rural America that want these jobs. Um, and what was happening, yes, there's a huge labor gap with all these deportations and the fear of undocumented adults going to work, but who is replacing them or children? Um, and so this is sort of a story that exemplifies that uh, reality. All right. And this is just kind of a trailer. He did a lot of things on this thing. I know. Director, so producer, yeah. co-writer, and co-cinematographer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm impressed. I didn't wear a lot of hats for it. As a little kid, my mom often said, get the tortilla to puff up on the stove, you'll be ready to marry. My mom got a divorce. Do you want to start it over? That, it shouldn't be like that, yeah. Now, now we're in your next film. I don't know because I just mailed the clip to them, so he has the clip. Okay. As a little kid, my mom often said, Once you get the tortilla to puff up on the stove, you'll be ready to marry. <laughs> my mom got a divorce. My mom said to me, Nosotros tenemos los pantanules de la casa. Ella trabaja siete días a la semana. Soy la única que puede cuidar a mis hermanos si algo llegara a pasarle a mi madre. Empecé a trabajar a los 15 años en la costa central de California, en donde nací. <laughs> Thank you. So Ashley's a 15-year-old. 
Well, so in the film, she's going from 17 to 18. Now she's in her early 20s. Okay. Um, she's a co-writer on the film with me. And she still works sometimes when I do video journalism. I'll hire her. And it, I have a screening for a short in Alcatraz in a couple of weeks. And she's coming out. So it's like people who are in the films, I really, it's like a family. And people just start coming to all know each other. Um, and it's really fascinating to think about those relationships and how people see themselves in the screen. How did that family feel being the focus of this film? Uh, so yeah, it was really interesting because, you know, I, I'd come to know the family before approaching mm -hmm. them about the film. Um, they've really have enjoyed it. We, um, our social impact campaign was very grassroots. So we went uh, along all throughout California doing outdoor screenings at migrant camps. Um, and, um, uh, yeah, migrant camps and outdoor screenings in different places mm -hmm. with uh, farm working communities. Um, and the family's very much been a part of that. You know, I was like nervous. There's, she has, Ashley has a, a conflictive relationship with her brother in the film, even though she loves him very much. And I was scared uh, when he first watched it. At first, there was a little bit of a fight that happened between him and Ashley. And I was very nervous about it, but he's now become a spokesperson around gender and his experience is like a young boy and how he's taken responsibility and like talking to young men. Um, so on our, the, it was very cool. So it's been, you know, very meaningful. And then one like small, but to me a big change um, it, that came out of it um, was, well, A, you know, how people, there's a lot of conversations, high schools, young people, it's being used now in Watsonville's curriculum for their English uh, course, and it's used to help um, kids that are undocumented or if their parents are undocumented who are working these jobs and they don't want to tell their teachers, they are now creating safe spaces mm -hmm. at the high school, um, and it's integrated into their English curriculum, the film. Um, and uh Along the way, um, 2180, 2183, which uh, allowed farm workers to vote in their households, it was um, Governor Newsom had vetoed um, this uh, policy that would allow farm workers to vote for union in their homes away from their bosses, and they'd get intimidated. And so because of the vault, we had over 40 um, impact partners and because of those relationships and i used to do video journalism for the intercept um then along the way before this really big migrant uh camp screening we were uh, i was able to do like a video journalism short about this vigil they, these women who walked three over 300 miles from southern california up to sacramento they were holding a vigil they were getting ready to go on a hunger strike and we published this five minute and just blasted it and Newsom. I, I mean, it's not the only thing. There was a lot of people coming together, but it was helpful. And Newsom came and right before the it the veto was going to go through, like they couldn't change it. He changed his mind. <laughs> and um, yeah, so now like at least farm workers can um, vote for union in their homes, which is That's really important, important for especially women who are harassed in the fields. Oh, wow. 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 So your films can really make a difference. Yeah, I think on for me, it was local level. I knew I couldn't get to D.C. necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, but I thought, OK, what I can do is uh, more what I find so inspiring is 
Um, union organizing is go is exploding all over the country. And if you work locally, there's incredible groups. And, um, you know, just creating that coalition. And even if it's a small change, those things build and they keep building. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was sort of the model we decided to take. Like, how can we take our limited funds and really create an impact within, you know, uh, kind of grassroots organization. I, I, really good. I really good. Yeah. yeah. Eureka, we're going to see Diamond Diplomacy. Mm -hmm. You want to set that up a little bit? It's it's a sizzle piece. <laughs> <laughs> um, the film is still in production, although I have started editing, which just started more need for production. But um, And um, it all started with uh, Dave Dempsey's dad having pitched for the San Francisco Seals. <laughs> um, but anyways, so just watch. Let's roll it. I believe baseball has taught these past few generations self-discipline, teamwork, fair play, and how to win and lose with dignity. Baseball was introduced to Japan in 1872 by a school teacher named Horace Wilson. 34 team was one of the greatest squads ever brought together at that date. Hall of Famers Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, slugger Jimmy Fox. History was made as the first baseball player of Japanese descent played for a U.S. Major League Baseball team and they needed a certain type of player. Next thing you knew, I signed a two-year deal, and the rest is history. General MacArthur called it the greatest piece of diplomacy ever. Few Americans knew Japan, even adopted our games. Although they marched to the baseball diamond as men marching to war. When the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, my father, it was just absolutely mayhem. June of 1964, manager of the Giants, Herman Franks, received a death threat. He doesn't belong in a national game. First two seasons was very, very tough, especially the first season with all this hoopla. This guy's coming from the major league, he's 31, making all this money, writing bad, bad things about me. Who would have thought 150 years later, baseball would play such a role in diplomacy between the U.S. and Japan? I've seen baseball serve as a tool for building international friendship. It cuts through communication and hardships as this tremendous way of bringing people together. Nomo pitched his first game for the L.A. Dodgers, and it helped improve relations between the U.S. and Japan. Ichiro Suzuki is one of the greatest players in the history of baseball. As teams, undersized guy from Japan, can compete in this uniform. And it's so great to look back on, you know, 150 years ago when baseball first came to Japan. Shohei Otani is now the face of MLB baseball.
So how would you feel doing, you know, this type of movie? Usually men are the ones talking about sports, um, traditionally about sports. How'd you feel a woman? You know, what it's was your funny because I, I never really thought about that because, I mean, I, I like baseball. So, you know, <laughs> and but um, there's definitely more men out there in the sports journalism kind of world. And um, well, the other interesting thing is that I'm a documentary filmmaker. I'm not a journalist. So there were all these like little nooks that I had to learn about. Um, but one of the things is um, you're trying to meet with players and, and arrange things. And you go into the clubhouse, which is really the locker room. <laughs> and um, there, there was one time when um, I was supposed to meet um, Maeda. The, it was, he was a new pitcher at, for the Dodgers. And, and they said, OK, show up at 8.15 in the morning. This is at spring training. And so I showed up at 8.15 in the morning, and the, the guy, my contact, came out and said, you know what, he's in this uh, trainer thing, so um, if you don't mind waiting. And I'm thinking, yeah, of course I'm going to wait, because, <laughs> you know, how else do you get to meet these people? <laughs> so um, I had a rather young, attractive <laughs> assistant with me, and she and I were, you know, we went in the dugout, we're waiting, and you know, I thought it was going to be like 15, 20 minutes. We were in there three hours. Oh, my God. Okay, so three hours, they're out there practicing and going in and out. And, like, all the players are walking by with their towels wrapped around them, <laughs> having taken showers and stuff. And, you know, I mean, it, but they look at you like, okay, well, you know, it's our <laughs> space. And so that, that, that was something different. But then I, I, I've met some uh, sports writers and they've told me, oh, yeah, it's always a hassle. And you go in there and they, you know, they think they own the place and they don't, they want to give you a hard time. And, and I think some of them have gone through some like sort of somewhat abusive kind of situations. But mm. for us, it was just sort of like silly and entertaining. And I couldn't believe I was in there for three hours. <laughs> <laughs> and when do you think it will be out? Well... <laughs> I, if anyone picked up a postcard, I crossed out the, the, the original release date when I printed the postcard and I wrote 2024. So hoping. <laughs> okay, that's going to be here before you know. Yeah. There's some cards out there, by the way, when you leave um, that has your, probably your website on it or oh, ways yeah. to contact you. Yeah, my postcard actually has a QR code on it. Okay. <laughs> so. <laughs> Well, let's go to the second clip that we have. Abby, yours is Waging Change. You talked about it a little bit. I mentioned it, yes. Yeah. So this is, this, was, this is my film on the tip minimum wage. And we can talk about how little has changed since <laughs> um, when we're done. But let's watch the clip. This blew my mind. The minimum wage for tipped workers is $2.13 an hour. My employer only pays me $2.13 an hour, meaning if I didn't get paid through tips after an eight-hour shift, I would only have $8, $9 and some change. The National Restaurant Association has enormous influence. They do not want to pay higher wages. We're here because we want to get a one fair wage on the ballot next November. If you know a problem exists and you don't do anything about it, then you're part of the problem. This is a gender equity issue. This is a race equity issue. This is actually a legacy of slavery. Restaurant owners were allowed to pay $0 an hour and let tip workers live on tips. 
nearly half of tip workers rely on public subsidies to make ends meet. It's demoralizing to not bring home enough money to provide for the basic needs of your child. When you force a woman to earn her tips as the majority of her income, she is way more vulnerable to harassment. There's a lot of fear around retribution just for standing up for yourself. They said, oh well, boys will be boys, we need their money. Massive layoffs have shocked the industry. Everybody I knew was out of work. If we learn nothing else from the pandemic, it is that we are interdependent. We are ending the legacy of slave wages. We are ending the legacy of sub-minimum wage. When you confront wage injustice, it allows you to confront all the other injustices throughout our society. Knowing that I can inspire others has given me so much hope. We can make change, not just make change, we can force change. Okay. So I wish I could say we have forced change. We haven't. Um, it is, you know, things are moving. It is a slow, I mean, it's a slow and steady struggle is basically what it is. New York State is being pushed to do something. They're still resisting. In D.C., the film tells the story of a D.C., um, whatever you call it, ballot initiative that was on the ballot that passed. It got reversed by the city council. They had to put it on again. It passed again, this time with 74% of the vote. And all the articles, I don't know if anyone else is following this, but all the articles now are about service charges. And we don't know whether to tip the waiters. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like it, it, it has gone from sort of bad to worse, even in places where they're trying to get rid of the tip minimum wage. So this is an issue around, you know, wage equity and gender equity and so on that is going to be with us for a while. And the opportunity that got missed because we, you know, we didn't have both a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate and a Democratic president all at the same time was for there to be any federal action taken on this. So the House passed it and then the Senate didn't. And so it, we're a little bit at a stalemate still. And what that means is we go back to the states. So California is, you know, we do not let people get paid $2.13 an hour here there are seven states where you can they get paid minimum wage. So like it's say in San Francisco, it's fifteen an hour. It's fifteen an hour plus tips. And that's bare, that's not even really a livable wage. But imagine if it was two thirteen an hour. Mm, no, that's, so that's just pathetic. Yeah. So anyway, we still have a lot of states where two thirteen, you know, is the federal minimum wage, tip minimum wage for restaurant workers. And mm -hmm. all I can say is that the struggle goes on and I I have to say I'm a little surprised that we haven't made a little bit more progress. This film came out in 2019, so we're at year four of this. And I mean, it's not like, oh, my film should have changed it. It's more that four years of struggle, and we're still like waiting for the Illinois legislature, waiting for the New York state legislature, and watching Congress do nothing. So it's depressing. Um, but but the good news is there's a real people's movement around this. Mm -hmm. And and the other, just to say one more thing about what's happened, in the post-pandemic world, there are a lot of restaurant workers who were like, I am not going back to work for the kind of wages you are paying me and for the sort of expectation that I'm going to be sexually harassed as part of my wage, you know, that you get to sexually harass me and then you decide how much to tip me. No. So what's happened is that restaurant workers, even in two thirteen states, have had to really consider paying more money and making it more of a livable wage for people. And so there are places. I mean, I just heard about a story about a restaurant in Cape Cod. They're paying forty and fifty dollars an hour. 
to their, you know, in spite of the fact that the tip minimum wage in Massachusetts is more like $6 an hour. But you can't get workers to do it at the sort of slave wages that we no. are used to or that they were used to. Um, and so there, there change is happening. It's slow. It's not uniform. But it's an issue to stay aware of because part of the goal of my film, and that's why I had such sweaty hands, <laughs> is that I could not believe that in the United States it was permissible to pay $2.13 an hour yeah. as a wage. I, I didn't know that. Believe it. No, people don't know clip. it. Um, so anyway, so this is, so this film continues hopefully to, you know, be used and to make a difference and to organize, um, and just a shout out to Saru Jarayaman for her continuing to lead this fight as the head of One Fair Wage. I mean, she's an amazing human being and continues to really, you know, do an amazing job. So here we are. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's what I guess I would say about this film. Mm -hmm. Emily, your next film is... Orchidea. 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 <laughs> I know I wouldn't like say a, it right. <laughs> you know, I know. It's like I have to. Yeah. So it's orchid in Spanish. Do you want to set that say, up say a little oh, bit? Sure. Yes. Yeah, so this is a, a film in progress, kind of early days. Um, so we're kind of development stage. Um, and, you know, the inspiration for this um you know, like so many of us, I'm concerned about um, the state of the planet. <laughs> um, and so this is really an exploration of the political and ecological life of orchids. Um, and the uh, I'll, you'll, you're going to ask me some questions and I'll kind of <laughs> wait before I say kind of certain choices. Um, but yes, it's told through the story of people living in the Colombian Amazon um, who care for orchids and also foes of the orchids. So um, we're in a moment in Colombia after the 2016 peace treaty where um, the FARC, which is a leftist rebel group, they started in 1964. Colombia has been decades at war. Uh, when they put down their arms, uh, which is, you know, a good thing. Most, a lot of us want peace. That's a progressive movement. Uh, but what happened when they put down the arms before they used to protect the jungle um, to hide under its canopy of trees. Um, but with uh, when, after the peace treaty, 40% of Colombia's Amazon jungle in Caquetá has been deforested in just six years. So this is um, a story uh, that you um, have an entryway um, through the lens of um, an orchid. Okay. It's very beautiful. <laughs> Say again how you say that word. Or Orchidea. Yeah. Orchidea. I live in a violent jungle, a place at war for decades. In 1964, the rebels in the jungle established themselves as a guerrilla force to overthrow the authorities. The newly formed guerrilla group needed the trees to hide, which ironically saved many of my species. But in 2016, when the humans signed a peace treaty, the guerrillas put down their arms. Paramilitary groups and cattle ranchers took over the jungles. When the trees are felled, I fall with them. In only six years, many of my species have become extinct. This is the story of my fragile existence and my quest to survive. 
In the 1980s, this jungle where I live became an epicenter for a narco trade. When the fumigation campaigns of the year 2000 against the coca plant started, I too suffered. Luckily, the humans stopped flying their fumigation planes in 2015. But the coca still grows. Narco-traffickers still dominate the jungle. And I fear that one day the spring will begin again. Cuando uno va a campo, pues colecta la planta. La idea es hacer un, un banco germoplasma de orquídeas vivas. Esas plantas repoblar el área donde se sacó. Tienen una inteligencia impresionante. La evolución ha hecho que sean pues, el grupo, la familia con mayor evolución en el grupo de las plantas. I am freed from the human chains of perception that divide the world into binary opposites. Male, female, white, black, civilized, wild. These binaries that cause so much pain and destruction. I am intersex. I am a thousand seeds in one pod. Without me, the pollinators die. The animals die. The forest dies. The world as we know it dies. I am orchid. Beautiful. Thank you. Orchidea, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so when I first saw it, I was thinking, like, who's talking to me, you know? <laughs> and then I realized it was the flower. Yeah. It was just a, just a beautiful twist. And so what? how did you come up with that idea? Yeah, so, you know, I've been... So kind of there's several ways that... Um, one being I, as an anthropologist by training, mm -hmm. and there's a study of science studies and kind of movements within thinking, um, that is about looking at, um, the relationships between humans and non-humans, um, and, and shifting, you know, it's really interesting. So I, I'm also working with Colombian biologists and we want to create this time-lapse studio for conservation biology and for the film. And, um, but we're... This one uh, biologist, she was like, I love, I, I'm so excited about being part of this film because I'm always saying we need to look through the lens of, of a flower or from a plant's perspective um, and and really sort of decenter that the environment that belong, like nature belongs to us. No, we belong to the, the to nature. And um, and so if you shift your lens towards thinking of other life forms, it opens possibilities. And for me, um, film is an art form, and it's about uh, questions, and and it opens another set of questions and um, reflection of our relationship with the natural world. And in terms of you know, there are other amazing films <laughs> about environment and and the struggle um, to um, save life on Earth. Uh, for me, the orchid is a stand-in for a life itself on Earth and how the storytelling kind of happens over this life cycle of the orchid and of the political life of Colombia and the war and what's happening. Um, and it's really a way to inspire wonderment. I think that we're in a moment of 
despair often um, when we just have all the news coming at us that the world is ending. <laughs> and um, I, I think that poetry or lyricism is, is, is the best enemy of despair. Mm -hmm. And so it's really a way to awaken wonderment to, it's a beguiling creature, orchids, um, and to allow oneself to see the world in a different way. And mm -hmm. so that's how um, the orchid came into becoming uh, the narrator. It's mm -hmm. amazing. It's very nice. nice. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> it's beautiful. Eureka, your clip is Baseball Behind Barbed Wire. Okay, so this film was carved out of the longer film. Mm -hmm. There was always going to be a chapter about the World War II Japanese-American incarceration because all 10 camps had lively baseball leagues and competition going on. Um, and I decided, okay, I may as well go out. There was a, a National Parks has a, a special grant that is the Japanese American Confinement Sites grant. And I thought, what the heck, I'm just going to write this. And so I, you know, kind of just made it up and sent it in and suddenly and got it. <laughs> I, I, I had $200,000 in my hand, you know, which, you know, going back to the fundraising thing, this is probably the only film that I haven't had this like right. <laughs> struggle. Mm. And, and it was, it's a short film. And um, so they told me, okay, you need to come up with a 50% match. So I have to go after some other ones. And I, I write grants like all the time, it feels like, and, you know, and you know, you get one for every like 20 that you write or something like that. But so then I, um, the California Library Association has a civil liber liberties grant that somebody else kind of said, hey, you know, this is something that might work. So went after them and, and got that one. Mm -hmm. And then there was a family foundation a San Francisco family, a Japanese-American family that um, funds mostly Japanese-American kinds of things, but they also had at the bottom of the website and selected films, documentary films about the incarceration. And I thought, okay, well, you know, so suddenly I had that one too. Mm -hmm. And so I have the money to finish this one. And so it's we had the final sound mix on Tuesday, and I have <laughs> one thing that I need to replace and then schedule the um, the color grading, and then we can put it together and have a finished film. So, uh, yeah, so I can't say that it's been easy because it, it started before the pandemic, and then it was like, oh, what the heck do you do while the pandemic's going on? Um, and then... I think you'll see both of the characters in there, but um, most of the people that were actually in the camps are leaving us on. these days. So um, uh, the, the the one guy in there was still alive, but just passed away like a month mm. ago. Mm. And speaking of poetry, so he has been writing haiku oh. like for many, many years, and he, he wrote some during... I think, well, he was just a kid during the incarceration, but I think it's mostly been a reflection type of thing. And so I felt like 
I needed to incorporate that. And I don't know if you're actually going to see it. But then, you know, I'm just seeing that Sabina is sitting here in the front row. And Sabina is my uh, animator. And there's only one little tiny sample in there you'll see um, of animation. But the finished film actually has quite a bit of animation in it. And it's quite beautiful. Okay. So, anyways, hopefully soon you guys will get to see it. It was universal. It didn't matter what your skin color was, your faith, what country you came from. Putting on a baseball uniform was like putting on the American flag. I remember had a barbed wire fence over six feet tall. America imprisoned their own Americans only because of their race. Now, we weren't supposed to actually go beyond that barbed wire fence, but my dad says, I'm going to build a ballpark there. Manzanar, Gila River, Jerome, Arkansas, all the camps had baseball fields. I think it was a way that Japanese Americans could find some kind of normalcy. I pitched the whole 10 innings, and they were hitting my balls all over the field. And there were thousands of people watching this game. They all ran onto the field. It was pandemonium. Baseball kept us alive as far as I was concerned. Otherwise, I would have been probably a juvenile delinquent over there. (laughs) Because we were only 15, 16, 17 years old. Um, you were saying that you didn't even, I mean, this seems like a big thing to be happening, but you didn't even learn about this in school when you were... Well, so my parents were in Japan during the war, so I didn't know anything about this until the 1980s when the whole... About the whole incarceration? Right. Until oh. the... I, I'm, I'm schooled in mostly in, since sixth grade, I guess, in California, and I didn't know anything about this until the 1980s when the whole reparations thing came up. And it was just, you know, it's just shocking that people didn't, it wasn't in the books, right. it wasn't in the history books. books. Yeah. It is now. I mean, it may not be in there enough, but it's now <laughs> at least there's a little bit of a reference to it. Do you think, in do you want the schools to change, uh, to show your film? Well, I mean, that's one thing that we're hoping to do with this film is that um, using baseball as a kind of, side door in Mm -hmm. um we're hoping to reach people that not preaching the choir you know not the japanese american audience that already knows about this we want um people who don't know that much or just know the little tiny bit and the three sentences that are in the history books or whatever so um one of the things that's kind of exciting is that um i'm leaving in a week to go to the baseball, National Baseball Hall of Fame mm-hmm. to present the film there and speak on a panel. Oh, and, you know, I'll be in front of... Baseball fans. <laughs> 90% men. Most of them are white <laughs> and most of them are older. But but they're, you know, a lot of academics. And, That'll be um, good. Yeah, so... Um, and then we're just working on what's next. We're still, mm-hmm. we're, we're still not quite finished, so... 
you know, we're, we're, we're trying to figure out the next steps. But the hope is that it will open some doors to places that, that aren't usually privy to this. And, and mm-hmm. the, the other interesting thing about this film is the, the footage that you see, you know, where they're, they're sitting. Um, I didn't actually get to film interviews with these guys, but it's a wonderful uh, course that there's a fifth grade teacher in the middle of Wisconsin mm. that decided that he needed his kids to have some diversity. And so he created this program called a walk in their shoes. And so he invited the two guys and Carrie, who is the historian who's there with them. And, and now I'm, he's asking me to bring the film to, to the middle of Wisconsin. Oh he said it's, it's like two and a half hours from Milwaukee and two and a half hours from Madison. <laughs> he said, yeah, it's kind of in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to going to the middle of nowhere to share <laughs> the film. That sounds great. You have to love it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think you have to love it because if you don't love it, then... It's too hard. Yeah, it's too hard. It's too hard. So the yeah. first thing is determine yeah. if this is something you have to do. I mean, yeah. which is something that, you know, artists say, dancers say, anybody mm-hmm. in the creative arts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have to really be willing to love it. It also would help if you can find someone to mentor you. You know, so it, it, you need somebody who can teach you kind of the... The ropes. So if you're not, I mean, if you go to film school, you'll find some people there who can do it. I didn't go to film school. I really needed to be mentored. Bye. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, so that's the other thing I would say. And, and the, the third thing I always say to young people is try to get a skill as you're coming up in this that you can always sort of, you know, rely on. So it's like, learn how to be an assistant editor, learn how to be an editor, get, you know, learn how to be a uh, director of photography, sound guy, whatever. People need to hire those people for Mm -hmm. any production. And if you have, you know, kind of a skill you can fall back on and that can support you while you're like making your masterpiece, that's better than just be making your masterpiece and have nothing to live off of. That, yeah, that, uh, I want to hear you, but that's very important. And I think that's like, I've used different skill sets and I still continue to do that, so whether I do grant writing, whether I do cinematography work for people. So I think that just skill, making those skills and then you can use that in your own films as well if you're in a moment of low. Yeah, so like if you can edit, which I can't, if yeah. you can edit, then you can't afford an editor? Okay, well, then you go do it for the next three weeks or whatever it is. Seriously. I, I mean, I don't know how to edit, but I'm just saying, I think <laughs> I think developing some independent skills that are needed for film production, if you could animate, that would save you a lot of money somewhere <laughs> along the way. You know, whatever it is, I think um, you don't want to just go into thinking that you're going to produce and direct without something else to sort of be the backbone of how you're going to survive. But it can definitely be something that's a part of, well, you know, I mean, it's, you know, we all have parts that we're okay, good at, and there's other parts that we're not so good at, and you may as well be doing the ones that you're good at and get paid for it. So, you know, that's, an, I think it's an encouraging thing for young people to sort of know that there's, find the little niche. But mm-hmm. in general, I think you have to be, you have to be passionate. But I, but let's talk about niche for a second, because I think you have a niche. Her film before these two baseball films was called Mrs. Judo. It was about a mm-hmm. judo expert or whatever we call her. Um, 
I had a niche that really made it possible for me to get started. And my niche was, niche, whatever you call it, niche, my niche was um, telling stories that were legal related so that I could use my law background and my contacts mm. to come up with ideas that nobody else was going to have. Mm-hmm. Nobody was going to tell the story of, you know, the first black judge on the federal district bench, blah, blah. <laughs> no. I mean, today maybe somebody would, but back in whenever I started that film, no, 2000, nobody was interested in that. And that gave me, you know, access to some stories that I wasn't competing with anybody else to tell. And there was sort of a market and support for, you know, among people who could maybe help that film come into fruition. So niches are very, niches are very, very important. So it's like mm-hmm. Emily's using her connection to Columbia. Mm-hmm. You're using your connection to farm workers. You know, you want to, it's like you want your film to grow out of something that you are kind of intimately involved in. Because your chances of knowing people who will support it or people who can be in it or people who can help you one way or another is definitely enhanced. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if I started to go make films about orchids in Colombia, <laughs> it would not work out so well. Let me just say, I don't speak Spanish and I, I'm not a flower lover. It wouldn't work. Okay, go ahead. Well, there there is a moment where I think when people were referring, maybe I'm wrong, so, um, but where Netflix and these other private um, companies were investing in film and maybe that will return, but we're currently, so it was sort of this, like Doc was always super indie, definitely PBS, right? But then it's like, oh, suddenly investors are interested. Uh, Suddenly Netflix is paying big bucks bucks Mm. for big sales. That was a thing that was in fiction film world, not for Doc. Uh, we had that for a while and then COVID happened. And I think we're just this year, I don't know, maybe it'll come back, but people are saying, you know, Sundance, there was no big sales. So now investors are scared. Like we're kind of in this moment where people aren't so sure about docs. The Writers Guild is on strike. Maybe that'll be good. We don't know. We, we live in a capitalist system, right? Um, different from Europe or Canada or even Mexico that do these large um, national uh, film boards that can give really big money that could, which I wish we had. We don't. (laughs) It's fragmented. So you're getting 25 here. You're getting 10 here. Maybe you'll get 100K if you really, you know, get one of those big ones. Yeah, Kickstarter. Uh, Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) Right. And then, you know, so... it's, It's very fragmented. We're very... We're, we're vulnerable to the sways of capitalism and, um, you know. And we and no. it may have crested and we're coming down yeah, the yeah. other side. And, yeah. and that, you know, we could say that that has happened without any of us, you know, finding the $10 million sale for some film we made. You know, <laughs> there are some people, there are a handful of films that sold for a lot of money over the last five years. But, you know, you can name them. Um, so I, I, and here's the good news though about the golden age of documentaries. I think that that moment in time helped people really appreciate documentaries. I think the pandemic helped us appreciate them. So the yeah. audience is there for them. That's not a way to fund the films, but it is a way to get your film seen. And I think that in that way, it, we're still in a golden moment. I mean, people are still interested in seeing the film and in the films. Mm-hmm. So, so that actually gives me hope because you're not working as hard as you used to be 
what, what's a documentary? You know, you're not there and people know what they are. People are interested. Um, and well, we have to wrap up, unfortunately, oh. but I do want all of you to give the information about how they can see more of your work. If you could, is there a source or a resource? I know that you guys have postcards. Right? I can <laughs> right. quickly, I don't have a postcard, a business card. You can come up to me and I'm happy to share my contact info. Also, I have uh, websites for my films, but if you go to Emily Cohen Ibanez, I-B-A-N-E-Z dot com, there you get to see like all of my work and my contact info. You can email me. I'm very like open with that, but I don't have a card or anything. That's all right. But for people yeah. who are watching this recording later. Uh, okay. Well, and yeah. I'm, I'm www.socialactionmedia.com and you okay. can see, you know, where my films are. Okay. And you Probably the easiest thing is uh, Diamond Diplomacy on Instagram. And there's also on uh, Facebook also. And from there, you can probably find the other stuff. So, Well, thank you so much. Appreciate all of you being here. And I, so wanted, I want someone to I, take a picture of So I want to thank, um, I want to say it. your names right. <laughs> Emily Cohen Ibanez. Ibanez, yeah. Eureka Gamo Romer mm -hmm. and Abby Ginsberg. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you all of you for coming tonight. And this concludes our program at the Commonwealth Club where we're celebrating 120 years of enlightened discussion. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.